Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, Cameron and I will be talking about how a realistic view of our spiritual ability can lead to hopelessness, but at the same time open the door to grace. Following up on our episode about empty moralism, we'll ask what it is that awakens a moralist to the need for God's forgiveness. We'll also look at how the church, which is called to holiness, can live out its mission without succumbing to merely enforcing the rules. Pastor Mark, in one of your sermons recently, you brought up a few categories that I thought we could talk about in the podcast. One was moralists, which you contrasted with realists or pessimists. I think you even called them at at one point, pessimists, realists. And you kind of pitched them against each other as almost two ways of looking at religion or two ways of thinking about God. And then you talked about grace being sort of in between them or in the middle. Can we unpack that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it was an oversimplification, but what I was asserting was that when it comes to spirituality, people tend to kind of go down one of two paths. And one of those paths is the path of moralism, and the other is the path of realism. In a sense, that contrast is based on like an optimist versus pessimist kind of thing. In the sense, the moralist is a person who is morally optimistic. So he thinks of himself as being a good person. And whatever is required of him, he feels is within his power. So moralists are not people who are, they don't see the law of God and think, oh no, who can do this? They see the Ten Commandments and they think, well, great. I mean, nine of those I would never do anyway. And one of them, I'm pretty sure I can avoid. You know, they're they're pretty confident. Uh, In contrast, you have people who have again, a more pessimistic view, but I'm calling it realistic, that they encounter the law of God, the holiness of God, and are filled with a kind of despair. You know, there's no way that I can do this. There's no way that I could even start to do what is required of me. And so rather than feeling full of hope, they really struggle to have any hope at all. And that's where the necessity of grace comes into play because of course you know grace is saying to the person who realizes there is no hope that yes there is hope not in yourself but in this gift from god would you say that moralists are synonymous with with legalists i've heard that term used in kind of a similar way that a a legalist is someone who thinks that they measure up or thinks that other people should measure up to God's law and that they're, they're able to do that? In Christian circles, legalism is the term we often use for what I'm talking about as moralism. But the reason that I like to call it moralism is because there is a wider world outside of our church conversations where people are very moralistic but wouldn't recognize that label legalistic because their moralism has nothing to do with the law of God. It may be like the moral codes of society or whatever. In fact, we've talked about this before. Right now, we live in an increasingly moralistic time. 
So we're surrounded by people who behave in this moralistic way, who think there is a right code of behavior and it is possible for people to do the right thing if they don't do the right thing, then there's no generosity or understanding of human weakness uh, because they should have done what they ought to have done. There's cancel culture instead, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't love that term, but but I, I suppose what people are talking about when they use it is something similar. You know, I think it's always conflicting for a Christian because... You know, we're seeing this turn in society where there are consequences for people's bad behavior, where in the past there weren't. And there's nothing about being a pastor that makes me look and say, well, you know, I don't know if if uh, I support the idea of, of predators having to pay for their you know, predation. Of course I do. And of course, from a biblical standpoint, I do. But obviously the concern is with the standard that is applied to judge whether or not those actions are right. So that what's difficult for me is when you know, someone who's guilty of things that the Bible would clearly place well beyond the bounds is treated in the same way as someone who's done something that from a biblical standpoint, uh, there's no law against, but there is a cultural bias against Can it. Can you give an example? One kind of example would be earlier in this period, there were some high profile cases of people who lost their jobs or, or positions because they expressed not even conservative political views, but maybe like libertarian or not, not progressive enough for their corporate context. And so uh, Silicon Valley, you know, you had some some people who had been big names before who got their comeuppance. Now, the opinions that they held weren't opinions that that the Bible would criticize or say that we must condemn, but they were considered outside the pale, culturally speaking. You know, sometimes the culture is against things that are also wrong in Scripture, but oftentimes there can be a lot of daylight. You know, some of the consequences from a biblical standpoint are more than justified, but the standard being applied is a different standard than the one that a Christian pastor would apply. I think when I look around our society right now, I see more moralists than realists. I, I see them. I'm not saying there are more. And maybe that's because moralists are more outspoken or they they have the confidence that they are living up to the standard, whatever it is. What is it that might lead someone to become a realist, though? What kinds of events are happening to them or what kind of worldview do they have that's that's causing them to lose hope and live ultimately in a kind of despair. Recently, Tim Keller wrote an essay in Comment magazine where he talks about forgiveness and specifically how forgiveness is is becoming harder for today's moralists to really relate to. So he talks about uh, movements for social justice and social change recently and how one of the differences that they have from similar movements in the past is that they don't arise out of the Christian tradition. And so rather than valuing 
forgiveness and reconciliation as virtues. Oftentimes, a call to forgive or to be reconciled is seen as uh, placing the onus on the victim to do something they shouldn't have to do, letting offenders off the hook. And in the process, we're losing touch with the idea of forgiveness because the necessary ingredient for that impulse to forgive is a sense of having been a wrongdoer yourself and having received grace. It's when I am conscious of all that I've been forgiven that I'm prompted to be forgiving towards others, even if they haven't groveled before me, they haven't made amends or anything like that. And so the less conscious we are of having received grace, the less likely we are to feel prompted to extend it. If you take that and then you kind of reverse engineer it, you begin to appreciate how a transformation can take place. I mean, spiritually speaking, that transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think hearts are changed and, and quickened by the Spirit, not through an intellectual process. But I think, at least in terms of, let's say, secondary causation, being awakened to your own shortcomings, being awakened to the damage that you've done, the pain that you've caused, is one of the major factors in making that kind of turn. This week I found myself reflecting on some rudeness that I showed to a mentor of mine in the summer of 1992 and a mentor who subsequently passed away. And, and even though I had later gone back and apologized and, and the original infraction was uh, one of those situations where you've made a fool of yourself, everybody's seen you make a fool of yourself, you're the one who's really done damage to yourself, but I still felt bad about it. And so I'd gone and apologized and been forgiven. and bygones. But even now, looking back on it, remembering sort of how I behaved, I felt ashamed and embarrassed by that. And, and I think it's in moments like that, that we get a true picture of our inadequacies. You know, and when you see the harm that you've done, even on a relatively small scale, it can make you wonder if that's the kind of person I really am. How confident should I be that I'm, I'm good enough and that a just and holy God will look at me and say, you get a pass, right? So I think it's experiences like that that can really awaken you. We were talking before this about the prodigal son a little bit. Tim Keller deals a lot with this in his book, The Prodigal God. But I think the brothers in that story picture these two poles a little bit. So the older brother is more of the, the moralist who feels like he's lived up to his father's standard and deserves something for it. Whereas the younger brother is, I guess you could say he's kind of a realist. Um, he doesn't start out that way. But yeah, he doesn't start. Yeah. Towards the end, he looks at his own sins and shortcomings and says, wow, I really don't deserve 
the grace of my father and the best I can get is to go back and, and be a servant or something. And I know we talked about this in the poem a few weeks ago, but, but I think the grace of that story, which is the grace of the gospel is of course the father coming to him and saying, yes, I know that you were a terrible son, but I'm accepting you anyway. And I'm lavishing these, these gifts upon you. And I think you're right that that experience in our own lives personally is what keeps us from despair on the one hand and pride on the other hand, like the moralists or the, or the realists. Look, a lot of people, like good church-going people, do not honestly perceive their own need of grace if they have grown up in sort of a Christian environment, if, if you've been raised to think, you know, good people go to church, they do nice things, they're, they're possessors of certain virtues, and you're one of them, then you may talk about grace because it's in the Bible. You might have committed to memory these words about grace. And if someone asks you, uh, am I saved by my works or am I saved by God's grace? You'll have the right answer. But experientially, you may never have actually experienced that grace. Um, you know, at, at Grace, capital G, the church, we are in the process of a membership class. And one of the things we talk about in that class is our mission statement and that idea of moving from seeking to finding to sharing. And that a lot of times churches take people who are seeking and immediately put them on the front lines of sharing without really having made sure that they found what it was they were seeking. So you might find yourself being an ambassador of God's grace, but you're actually a moralist who feels as if God is pleased with you because you're a good person and because compared to most others, you know, you're in great shape and Usually, like you could diagnose, if you were going to self-diagnose, you would, you would notice your attitude towards fellow believers. You know, if you have feelings of, you know, superiority towards others in your church, the ones who aren't really the faithful ones, the ones who don't seem to know as much as you do or don't practice the faith the way that you do, if you find yourself reflecting a lot on the shortcomings of others in that way, then you should examine yourself because you may be guilty of this same thing. And, and when I say examine yourself, what I really mean is you should start praying and asking yourself if perhaps you need a, a greater experience of grace because that experience will change the way that you see your brothers and sisters. Back to my experience at seminary, reading through Calvin again. I remember reading a section where he, he was really driving home the idea that you had to face your sin and kind of, I mean, face it to the full and really, really let the weight of your own sin fall on your shoulders, you know, look it in the face before you could accept grace. And I remember reading that the first time thinking it was a little extreme, it just seemed kind of morose in a, in a way. Sure. And I remember asking my professor about it. I don't remember what he said, but, but I understand what Calvin was getting at in this conversation that you will 
I think live a life, you will tend to live a life of moralism when you forget about your own fault, your faults and your shortcomings. And when you forget about the gifts that you've received. The reality is that all of us who are in Christ are called to be always at the cross and constantly reflecting on our need for grace more and more so that we are constantly discovering the ways we are inadequate, the ways in which we have failed, and that is constantly throwing us back on the grace of God and the love of Christ. Right? As you grow in grace, you may feel less secure in your own personal morality and virtue. When you know, people question you, instead of protesting that you're a good person, you'll be quicker and quicker to acknowledge that you're not, and that it's only the grace of God that you can cling to. How does the church maintain high moral standards without becoming moralists? The church is called to be holy. God not only calls us to be holy, but in the church, he gives us a structured community with authorities over us to encourage us not only in believing the right things, but also in practicing. Now, the elders of the church have this disciplinary function and it is a positive one and a negative one. You know, it's a positive one in the sense of the teaching ministry of the church. It's negative in the sense of reproof and correction. I think there is something about that process. When, when you know that part of your job is moral enforcement, it can easily become a moralistic framework. In order to prevent that from happening, I think it's very important to ground all of that oversight in the reality of grace. We are conscious of people's shortcomings in the church, but we don't react to them as if we didn't know that they were fallen. We didn't know that they were sinful. We react with a Christ-like compassion for their humanity and weakness, but also a desire to see repentance. If we focus on the idea of restoration, that helps us avoid like the church just being a place where we're enforcing the rules, and also the church being a place where we teach people how to appear good in order to avoid being called on the carpet. And all too often, I think that's what happens is that if you are, you know, a, a good person, quote unquote, and you are focused on obeying the rules, listening to authority, doing what's expected of you, and if that's what the church trains you to be, eventually you're going to get into the larger world and you're going to find out that the authority and the moral standard is different. And if you're just a rule follower, you're just going to follow the new rules. And I've seen that happen, you know, more times than I'd like to admit, where people have left the relative shelter of the church, who've lived very squared away lives, always following the rules, 
And then they've been shocked to discover that playing by those rules doesn't make people out there think I'm good. It's just the opposite. And that feeling of condemnation is hard to bear, you know? And so, you know, if you, if you think, well, I would never be able to bear the, the scrutiny and the judgment of my church, well, try bearing the scrutiny and judgment of the world and your whole, you know, society, that's even harder. And so people who are attuned that way or formed that way, oftentimes will seek that path of, it's not even least resistance, but just the path of moral compliance. The church, especially now, can't just be a subculture of moral enforcement. It really does have to be a culture of grace, even in its discipline, in order to distinguish itself from the rampant moralism all around us. Well, it's something I think you've always done really well at, at Grace, and I've appreciated your preaching for this reason, that it is very grace-forward. And I, re- I totally agree with you that that is, that is the solution to the problems of moralism and realism, if we call them that. That the feeling of receiving a gift that you don't deserve by its very nature, and the gratitude and the joy that comes with that, creates in me a kind of humility, which I, I, I hope is the answer. You know, I hope is the, the posture that really God is calling his people towards as a church that, that doesn't mean being humble. Doesn't mean you can't hold high standards. I think God does hold his people to very high standards. And yet it's a humility, which recognizes that we only we only enjoy a relationship with God by grace and it's there at the start and through the middle and and all the way to the end. So I think that you have, you've done a great job with your sermons and and kind of cultivating that environment. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Don't you think that there's a difference between a repentant person who struggles and an unrepentant person, right? I mean, it's not that difficult to perceive the difference. And a repentant person who struggles needs instruction, needs encouragement and support, sometimes benefits from like a word of reproof or possibly from some patience, right? When uh, you're not doing what you should do and you know you're not doing what you should do, Sometimes the last thing you need is for everyone to tell you, hey, you're not doing what you should do. It's like, yeah, I know. Uh, bearing with people in those circumstances might be the right pastoral move. But that's very different from unrepentance. Right? When people are in a state of persistent sin, which they don't recognize as sin, or, or they do, but they have no intention of changing, that's not a struggle in the same way. And what's needed there is an awakening, like an awareness of, of grace. And so I think oftentimes our, our moralists find themselves in that state. Like part of the, the talent of minimizing your sin is deciding it's not sinful. And there is a need 
then to awaken that sense of sin. And, and that's why in our teaching ministry, we try to balance those two things. On the one hand, holding up grace, the necessity of grace, the beauty of grace, and on the other hand, insisting on the authority of Scripture, that what Scripture condemns is wrong, and that what Scripture approves is right, regardless of what you've heard elsewhere or thought. And so having those two poles to kind of work around, I think, gets you where you need to be on this in terms of like being gracious without just opening up the door to licentiousness as if grace had no cost. That's all the time we have for now. If you'd like to read Tim Keller's essay on forgiveness, which I mentioned earlier in the episode, I'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you, Cameron, as always, and thanks to you, our listeners. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.